So I like to say that uh, I was dating Erica long before she was dating me, I think it's true. Uh, we were friends. My sister had moved out to LA and we would all kind of hang out together. And then my sister moved back to Atlanta and I stayed and Erica and I just sort of kept doing things together. We would go to dinner, we would go to movies, lots of things to do in that area. Sometimes we even went to Disneyland. And uh, one night, I brought her home, and I thought it would be good to define the relationship. Let's talk about this. I think that I introduced it with something like, maybe it's time we talk about us. And she gave like the last response I was looking for, which was, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, I don't think we ever actually dated. I think we like went straight from like we're just friends to engagement, and we just we skipped the whole dating process. Um, the best relationships are those <laughs> where you know exactly where you stand. I think we would all agree with that. Uh, there's trust, honesty, love, humility. Marriage should be the most secure of all human relationships, simply because it's a relationship where one person has made a vow. To another person, promised faithfulness, among other things. Uh, the parent-child relationship should be a secure relationship. The parent cares for the child until adulthood. The adult children care for their parents as they get older. The best friendships, I'm sure you would agree with me, the best friendships you've ever had, I know this is true for me, are the ones in which there's no ambiguity. It's just a joy to have friends that you can trust, you don't have to wonder what do they mean by that, or be afraid that you've offended them. And then, of course, our relationships in the church, the body of Christ, should be some of our strongest friendships, because we are able to trust other Christians, because we know that they have committed to follow Christ's commands to one another. We live with the reality that all of the relationships in this world that we have with other people are tainted by sin. The best marriages, the best families, the best friendships can't escape it. Sooner or later, we will get angry, we will get hurt, we will hurt somebody else, we will misunderstand, or we will be misunderstood. And in most cases, as long as Christ tarries, we will eventually experience the loss of the closest relationships because one person or the other will die, and death is the ultimate separation. Some of you in here may be very hurt by family, by friends, by people in churches. Some of you may have hurt others who are close to you. But there is a friend who sticks closer to a brother. And friendship with Jesus, this is the beauty of our relationship with Jesus. It means that the sin is only on one side. It's only on our side. We are sinners, but he is not. And in our passage today, I... I I gotta quit saying that we've hit like a high point. If everything's a high point, nothing is. But it feels like this is a big high point as we're continuing on through John 14 through 16. Maybe John 14 through 16 is just a high point in general. Uh, but I think it's a great way for us to spend our last time together. This will be our last time together in John uh, until 2022. Uh, I hope you've seen that this, this section, John 14 through 16, is filled with so many promises. I think this is a great place for us to land at the end of this year. And I'd like to direct you, if you would turn to John 15, we'll read the, the whole passage in just a minute, but I'd just like to direct you to, to verse 15, John 15, 15, because that is an amazing statement. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God Most High, is defining our relationship with him. I no longer call you servants. I've called you friends. And this is the high privilege of being a believer. You are a child of God and a friend of Jesus Christ. Does that seem a little crazy? Did it seem like ever so slightly blasphemous to say, I am friends with Jesus Christ? And yet that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, you are my friends. Now, I know that in a room like this, every week, there are going to be some in here who are unconverted, who are not Christians. And if that's you, and you know it this morning, I'd simply ask you to listen. Because John 14, 9 through 17, describes what it means to be friends with Jesus. You will hear the gospel, and you will hear how Jesus himself views those who follow him. And you can call Jesus friend. These words from Christ, they are from for Christians this morning. Turn that one. He's promising friendship. I love this. Jesus Christ is promising friendship, and he always keeps his word. All of his promises are true. He will never leave us. A true follower of Jesus Christ can never, ever be friendless, because he is our friend par excellence. All right, so I'm going to read the passage. Uh, you can read it. Quietly, as I read out loud, uh, verses 9 through 17, two simple points today just for the purpose of dividing up the passage. Love in verses 9 through 13 and friendship in verses 14 through 17. So let me read it as you read along in your Bibles. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose, choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. All right, so first of all, let's see what Jesus has to say about love in verses 9 through 13. I finished up last week by saying that these are very clear words from Christ. I do think that we're in a section of scripture here where Christ's teaching is very plain. This isn't hard to understand. Nothing is mysterious. We saw last week, if you abide in Christ, you will glorify the Father and you will bear fruit. The issue there was fruit bearing. The issue here is love. And so here's another remarkable statement in verse 9. As my Father, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Consider this. We have no adequate way of measuring the love that the Son has for the Father and vice versa. 
Whatever the extent of that love is, and we don't know, we can't imagine the extent of that love, whatever the extent of that love is, it is perfect. We know that it is complete. We know that it is limitless. If you have children, you know something of this love. You will not be surprised to discover that I deeply love my children. I want the best for them. I want them to be happy. I want them to have what they need. I want them to know how much I love them. In our house, we say that regularly. And yet somehow, my love for my children does not even come close to the love that the Father has for the Son. And Jesus says that same love that the Father has for the Son is the love that Jesus has for his followers. Jesus' relationship with the Father equals the relationship that he has with his disciples. So as God the Father loves the Son perfectly, so Jesus loves his followers perfectly. We actually saw this way back in chapter 13, the very first verse of chapter 13, sort of at the beginning of this night that they're spending together. Jesus, uh, John says of Jesus, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And if you remember, we said that that doesn't speak so much of duration as it does perfection. He loved them perfectly. If you remember, Jesus loves them perfectly, intimately. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. The truth is Jesus loves you perfectly. When you are tempted to doubt his love, brothers and sisters, by faith, Take him at his word. Jesus loves you better than you love your kids. Jesus loves you better than your parents love you. He loves you better than your spouse. He loves you better than your friends. All other, other love is secondary to Jesus' love for his own. And we know it's true because he said it. And he's told us. And ultimately, it is true that if we doubt it, we're calling him a liar. He has assured us of his love. So here's the command. Abide in my love. Christian, Jesus commands you to live in his love. Continue resting your souls in my love. Cling to it like a fortress. Celebrate it. Rejoice in it. Rest in it. I've mentioned Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, several times in these few chapters, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I believe that most Christians today seriously undervalue the blessings of abiding in the love of Christ. There are treasures there for those who listen to the words of our Lord here. Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ so that we would be filled to the fullness of God. That prayer alone should drive me to ask personally, how do I abide in Christ's love? How do we abide in his love? And Jesus gives a clear answer to that question. Once again, you cannot walk away from this passage wondering what he meant. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide 
in his love. For some reason, obedience doesn't feel like the way that we would abide in Christ's love. What about singing love songs to Jesus? Sure. What about journaling love notes to Jesus? Absolutely. Can't hurt. Can I walk around in God's creation and consider Christ's love as I look at the beautiful things he has created? Absolutely. All of those things and more may be a part of our love for Christ, but if we don't obey him, we are not abiding in his love as he has commanded us to abide in his love. How does Jesus expect us to abide in his love? It's very practical, very specific. It's also very consistent with what we've already seen. Verse 15, chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus adds that he has abided in the Father's love by keeping the Father's commandments. I hope you remember all the way back to John chapter 5. We saw that Jesus was and is the most dependent man who has ever lived. He was that strange person who might be overheard at dinner saying, I always do what my Father commands me. That would be so weird. And yet that's what he says in John chapter 5. He's truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So Jesus lived abiding in the Father's love by doing the things that he told him to do. Praise God, Jesus will do the Father's will all the way to the cross on our behalf. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Bear with me here. There is something deep in our souls that makes us want to weasel our way out of obedience. We hear this and we think, there must be some other way. But here's what it boils down to. We're saying to Jesus, please let me love you like I want to love you. But Jesus loves us enough to rescue us from thinking that we can love him like we want to love him. Remember, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. So here's a reality that we're seeing. I think we're seeing this as we consider these final instructions by Jesus to his disciples. This is the reality. My actual experience of assurance, happiness, enjoyment in the Christian life is inextricably linked to my willingness to obey his commands. Let me say that again. Think about this with me. And I think you'll see that this is ringing true with what we're seeing. Our actual experience of assurance and blessing and happiness and enjoyment in the Christian life is inextricably tied to my willingness to obey Jesus. Simply put, the extent to which I obey Christ's commands is the extent to which I am abiding in his love. And to sin willfully or to remain in unrepentant sin is to forfeit his presence. And please don't be tempted to cry legalism here. Remember, Jesus is talking to saved people. He is talking to 11 young men who are in. Jesus is not explaining how to be saved. He is explaining to saved people how they should abide in his love. Why? Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is offering us the path to fullness of joy. You hear this? Jesus Christ, he knows the joy of obedience. 
and he wants us to know the joy of obedience. Why should I abide in his love by obeying his commands? Because in so doing, he has promised me joy. He's promised me peace. Chapter 14, verse 27, my peace I give to you. He promised me love in verse 9, and now he promises me joy. I've got peace, love, and joy like a river. We're not going to sing that this morning. <laughs> Tyler, get up here. I listened to a sermon this week by Alistair Begg. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Alistair Begg. Uh, he's a wonderful pastor, been, been a pastor, preacher for a long time in Cleveland. You can listen to him at a, a Truth for Life is his little audio program. He has a Scottish accent, so really he could just be reading the phone book and I'd, I'd be mesmerized. Uh, but he said this, the half-hearted Christian gets the worst of both worlds. The half-hearted Christian gets the worst of both worlds. There are true Christians, I am convinced, who do not abide in the love of Christ. So we're not talking about a dichotomy here between perfect obedience on one side and utter apostasy on the other. Clearly, in this passage, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about how they should abide in his love. We know they're struggling. Okay, so he's saying, in the midst of this struggle, here's how you abide in my love. So let's just assume that night, at least some of those guys, if not all, they're not abiding. The Christian who is not abiding in the love of Christ, or the half-hearted Christian, as Alistair calls him, isn't enjoying the peace, love, and joy of Christ. Nor are they enjoying the pleasures of sin. And I, I call it the pleasures of sin because that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Regarding Moses, he says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I used to think that all non-Christians were secretly miserable all the time. I would say that to high schoolers back when I was in youth ministry. All your friends, they look like they're having a good time, but you know what? Deep down, they're miserable and they feel guilty all the time. And then finally, I had a kid to say to me, he was, uh, his name was Skippy. Skippy, if you're listening to this, thank you. He said, uh, Dave, I don't really think that they're having that, that, that much guilt and misery as they're having a good time. And I thought, eh, you're probably right. <laughs> because the broad road to hell is crowded for a reason. Sin's pleasures may be fleeting, but that doesn't diminish the pleasure. Christian, Christ is holding out to you peace, love, and joy. Peace, love, and joy can truly flow out of you like a river. He is defining the relationship. He is sitting down and he is stating the terms of his relationship. He has no sin. He can always be trusted. He will always love you perfectly. Do not spurn his offer because you're turned off by the idea of obedience. So what are we obeying? There's a progression here. As the Father loves Jesus, so Jesus loves us, and then so we should love each other. John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So one of the first principles of Bible study, if you're trying to figure out how to study Bible, one big principle is look for repetition. Look for things the author says over and over again. So here's, here's something the author, John, says over and over again. Love one another as I have loved you. 
One again, going back to, to chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples when you have love one another. I want to abide in Christ's love. I hope you do. So, so assuming that we are a people who want to abide in this love of Christ, how do we do this? I keep his commandments. Like what? How about this one? Love one another like Christ has loved us. What is that measure? What is the measure of love that Christ has for us? Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. What's the greatest love of all? Remember that Whitney Houston song? This was the, the lyric. Because the greatest love of all is happening to me. I won't sing it. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. That song is a lie from the prince of lies, Satan himself. And many Christians today would affirm those lyrics. For many, that really outdated pop song would ring more true than words of Christ in this passage. That is saccharine pop psychology, and it is deadly. Anyone who directs you to love you is directing you to that way that seems right to man that leads to death. Hear the words of Christ. Just consider the word of Christ. The greatest love of all is that one would lay down his life for another. The greatest love is self-sacrificing love. Jesus says it is better to give than to receive. The whole Bible is one big warning against the dangers of loving yourself more than anything else. Self-sacrificing love leads to joy. Whitney Houston was wrong. She was deadly wrong. And until Jesus returns, this world is going to be busy trying to convince you that the first step towards happiness is self-love. And you don't have to wonder what Jesus thinks about that because he says it clearly. If you choose to believe something else, we're believing a lie. So here's a summary of Jesus' words up to this point. As much as the Father loves the Son, Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his life for you. He did that because of the joy set before him. Jesus now invites you to abide in his love. You abide in his love by keeping his commandments. His commandment is that we love one another. So here's where we get to the friendship part, verses 14 through 17. Let me just read the whole passage again. 14, you are my friends, if you do what I command you. There it is again. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask for the father in my name, he may give it to you. It is a glorious privilege to follow Christ, to know Christ, to serve Christ, to follow Christ, to obey Christ, to work in his vineyard. None of these things should be taken lightly. Fullness of joy is offered to us. And sinful men and women, like ourselves, all of us here in this room, can be called friends of Christ. Have you ever looked around and thought, it would be really cool to be that person's friend. Man, to be Tiger Woods' friend and have him, like, call you up sometimes and say, hey, let's play a round of golf, okay? You know, just, okay, uh, all right, let, I can probably squeeze that in with you tomorrow. Tony, LeBron James, 
hey man, I just, just want to get together and just have a little shoot around this week. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, let me, uh, let me clear some time. Set aside politics for a moment and just consider, consider the office. What would it be like if the person who was president was just your friend? You know, yeah, I, I, the president calls me sometimes. He's my good friend. And uh, just to chat, just to like run some things, you know, national security, just to see what I think. Talk to his mind, talk about his mind. You know, does that resonate with you, Cleland? Yeah, sure. I think, I, think that's probably, I think that's probably wise. Maybe you should go talk to some of your other guys who like do this for a living, but that, that sounds great to me. And the problem is, too, like if you were to go to Tiger or LeBron or Joe and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to be your friend, like you might get locked up. You know, like that puts you into the category of like weirdos, right? Let's think of this in a different context, because I think, I think in our like sort of individualistic, you know, Western context, it's hard for us to think about this. But if you lived in a kingdom with a king, and remember, that's what we're going to live in uh, in the future, you might dream of getting to serve in the palace. Right? So the palace is up on the hill. It's beautiful. It's resplendent. You live maybe a normal life, or maybe you live in squalor at the foot of the hill. Maybe you get to see the king going by sometime, being carried by his servants. For much of human history, that's what people would have thought of. The White House really doesn't even compare. And let's just say that, that as those people were going by in their splendor, someone offered you a job. You were going to be lifted out of that normal life, or even out of poverty, and given quarters in the palace. You're going to be given new clothes. You're going to be given food to eat, because scrawny people can't serve in the presence of the king. But you have to do the king's bidding. You have to do what he commands. Nobody in their right mind would turn that down. Nobody would say, no thanks, I'd rather remain in squalor because it's kind of offensive to me to think about having to do what king asked me to do. Jesus tells this short little parable in Luke 14 that sort of, I think, very much encapsulates the life of a servant. He says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come in at once and recline at the table? So nobody says to the servant, hey man, are you done? Yeah, come on in here and let's have dinner. Jesus' words again, will he not rather say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because what he, he did what he was commanded? So also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That is the life and thinking of a servant, okay? To do the will of your master is your purpose. It's your job. It defines you. Jesus is our master, and we are his servants. And so, to some extent, that should be our mindset towards obedience as a devoted servant. And the truth is, it would be amazing grace if Jesus had simply lifted us up out of our sinful squalor and asked us to come to live with him in eternity as his servants, just pure servants. A servant receives orders, he does what he's told, he waits on his master's call, praise God, I was going to hell, and now I'm going to go be a servant of the king. That would be very good. But Christ, in this passage, is elevating us beyond servanthood. He no longer calls you to be a servant, he is calling you his friend. He doesn't just tell you what to do, he shares his mind with you. Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit has brought us the very thoughts 
of God. And so if we understand the privilege that we are being offered, I don't think we would be as off-put by the idea of obedience. And to top it off, Jesus chose us. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. I don't know how one applies for a job at White House or Buckingham Palace. I'm certain you don't just walk up to the door and knock and say, I would like to work here, please. I don't think that's how it works. There's a long process. There's vetting. You probably start somewhere far, far, far away from all the important people. Jesus chose you. Now, we do believe here that Jesus has elected us for salvation. That is taught in other passages, and we'll dive into those passages, Lord willing, in the future. But here, I think Jesus is speaking specifically of the work that he intends for his followers to do. Because we're once again back to fruit bearing. I have chosen you so that you would bear fruit. Remember Isaiah 5 from last week. God chose Israel as a nation to bear fruit. If you are a Christian, Jesus has chosen you to bear fruit. God intends his people to bear fruit. All right, so how do we know Jesus is talking to us? Does that bother you a tiny bit? He's talking to these 11 guys. They're going to go out. They're going to be apostles. What if he's just talking to them? And we're just listening in on the conversation. Turn with me real quick to chapter 17. This is just after his little discourse, and we'll get there. This is his prayer. Chapter 17 is a, is a long prayer. Verses 20 and 21. And this is why I believe that Jesus is talking to us also. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We are here today hearing the word written down by one of the people in that room. We are those who believe in Christ through their word, that we may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I think we're there, and I think these are promises for us. So here's the tie-in to Christmas. This one isn't very hard. I'm not having to work at this very much. We sang O Come, O Come, Emmanuel a few minutes ago. Christmas, we hear a lot about Emmanuel, God with us. Song is a cry to God to come and be with us. No human could have anticipated the extent to which that promise would come true. Jesus came to be with us. He is like us. He lived among us. But who could have anticipated that the Messiah would come, and at the end of it all, he would say, you are my friends. A God who was behind a curtain, behind a veil, in the tabernacle, in the temple, who you couldn't even approach except one person once a year at great peril because he is so holy, and that veil ripped in two, and you, again, you would, you would think, okay, okay, that's good. Now we can come into the temple, but we're still going to have to crawl, and we're going to have to grovel, and no. He is our friend. He isn't locked away in a palace. He wants peace, love, and joy to flow through us 
like a river. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We hear these things over and over, but I think we fail to see the glory at all. Christian, you will never be friendless. You will never be alone. Heaven forbid if you get locked up in a cell for your faith, your friend has promised he will be there with you. We're going to sing in a minute, what a friend we have in Jesus. That may not be your favorite tune of all time, but please, while we sing it, just listen to the words. What a friend we have in Jesus. Do you know him as your friend? Are you abiding in his love? One of my favorite promises in the scripture comes from James 4. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How do we do that? We abide in his love. We obey his commandments because he has called us his friend. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for leaving us with these words because there's no way I would believe this if somebody else tried to tell me this apart from you. It just seems too crazy that you would call us friends. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to take these words seriously. I pray that Hope Bible Church, we would be a people who live as friends of the Messiah by abiding in your love and by obeying your word. Give us grace to hear this. Father, I pray that peace, love, and joy might flow through us so that the world would see that the Father sent the Son. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May we know you soon as friend in person as we know you now as friend by faith. We pray in your name. Amen.